Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of the Snyder Cut. I am your loyal host here for every episode, Jeff Snyder, and joining me today is nobody. I am on my own. I'm doing the show solo once again. Lots to discuss. Uh, started seeing some of the fall festival movies, despite not being at the fall festivals. I love how, like, you know, the, the, sometimes there are concurrent L.A. screenings or, you know, screenings in L.A. the day after a movie de- uh, debuts at Toronto. So I, I will be able to talk about some cool movies later uh, on in this episode. Um, but we're going to start with this J.J. Abrams mega deal. He finally closed this mega deal with Warner Media for movies, TV, a whole bunch more. Uh, Bad, Robot, Bad Robot moves over to Warner Brothers, effectively, uh, from Paramount. Uh, this is a reunion of sorts because J.J.'s TV business has always been at Warner Brothers Television. So now everything is sort of under one house. And we learned earlier today sort of why he turned down Apple, even though you know Apple you know, offered a lot more money. Uh, THR's report kind of said that J.J. was not terribly impressed by Apple's presentation. Um, you know, a few, a few months ago or weeks ago or whatever, and that kind of sealed the deal. Although he denied that, and, and Apple denied that. Like, <laughs> I, I I thought that was just kind of hilarious. But um, like, kudos to THR for even including a tidbit like that in their reporting. Um, you know, uh, the immediate speculation is they want J.J. Abrams to either create franchises, something that he has never really done. I mean, you could call Cloverfield a franchise, but none of the the movies really connect or, you know, anything. Um, It's it's a universe, I suppose. I don't know if it's necessarily a franchise. Um, But, you know, they, they want him on DC. Let's let's be frank here. They want him on DC, and the speculation is that he would, uh, you know, effect- effectively do a a Superman movie. Um, he had written a Superman movie back in the day. I don't know, fifteen, twenty years ago. Who knows when he was up and coming? And um, you know, I don't know if he was supposed to direct that script or if he was just a writer for hire back then. Obviously, it didn't work out. But like JJ has always coveted Superman, and I think that Superman is sort of the one character that Warner Brothers has not quite nailed. I mean, I, I loved Henry Cavill uh, and what he brought to Man of Steel. I liked Man of Steel. It's one of the better DC movies, I think, um, and it's kind of it was odd that it never got a sequel um, because, yes, yeah, Superman was kind of overshadowed in Justice League and Batman vs Superman, even. So whether they you know bring back Henry Cavill for a proper Man of Steel sequel, or whether they let J.J. Abrams sort of cast his own guy and and reboot it, I do believe that that eventually, even if J.J. doesn't end up directing it himself. I could, you know, like I feel like he's going to be involved as a producer. Maybe he sort of becomes the Kevin Feige of the DC universe and, and, and shepherds uh, that whole world up there. But I, I don't know if they if they necessarily need that. And I don't think that J.J. Abrams should necessarily be spending his time or energy playing that kind of part either. Um, so there were there were two, you know, things in looking at Warner Brothers IP. Uh, I, I was talking about it with with one of my Twitter pals uh, <laughs> the other day. And they they kept advocating for interspace, like ah, oh, J.J. Abrams doing interspace would be amazing. Um, and and listen, I, I'm not an interspace guy. I didn't really grow up with that one. I don't think that the IP holds that much weight or value, um, even though it may have been a big hit in, in home entertainment. I just don't, you know, kid, people aren't walking around talking about interspace that much these days. But you know, it, it is similar to like Fantastic Voyage, which Guillermo del Toro had tried to get off the ground. I think Paul Greengrass tried to do it at one point. 
Um, so, you know, that maybe that would be interesting. But that's not what I see J.J. Abrams doing. And I don't see him doing like a Potter movie. I don't see him, you know, do, joining the Matrix or someone had speculated, you know, maybe like the Looney Tunes universe because Warner Brothers has sort of struggled to do anything with that. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Space Jam 2. But again, I don't think that that is J.J. Abrams' forte. Like, there there are two specific properties that I think Bad Robot and J.J. Abrams could really add a lot of value to. The first one is a little more obvious than the other one. The first one I would say is Gremlins. If I was Warner Brothers, I would definitely be entrusting Gremlins to J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot. I mean, these guys, they they have experience with creature features like Cloverfield. I think J.J.'s... His strength is in genre, whether it's Lost or Super 8. Um, so, like, I, I think Gremlins is sort of the no-brainer as far as, you know, what what they give J.J. to play with. But there's another movie uh, that doesn't necessarily scream sequel, but it's it's totally possible. If you look at the, the top 25 Warner Brothers highest-grossing movies of all time, whatever it is, um, there's there's really just one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you through it. I'm just opening it right now. All time. Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Wonder Woman. That's all DC. Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part 2. That's Potter, obviously. American Sniper, you're not going to sequel to that. Aquaman, DC. Batman vs. Superman, DC. It, the It movies are done. Like, you don't just immediately reboot those. Um, so that's not going to be it. Suicide Squad, DC. Again, if he, if he does DC, I'm pretty sure it'll be Superman. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The Hobbit. I don't. Th- I don't see J.J. Abrams rebooting The Hobbit or doing anything with uh, in that you know Tolkien universe. Harry Potter and Half Blood Prince. Har- Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part One. Harry Potter Order of the Phoenix. Inception. Obviously, he's not going to sequelize one of Chris Nolan's movies. Man of Steel. Harry Potter and Goblet of Fire. The Matrix Reloaded. The Hangover. You're not going to give J.J. Abrams The Hangover. You're not going to give him uh, a sequel to Gravity or something like that. Uh, the Lego movie. Like you know, Blind Side. These- None of these movies are are, are doable. At number 24, I Am Legend. I could definitely see, like, Warner Brothers wants to do something with I Am Legend. They have been trying to get an I Am Legend sequel or prequel or sort of side movie that's happening simultaneously in another part of the world movie going. Um, I don't know, you know, if Akiva is still involved or, or whatever the deal is with that. I don't know if they would bring back Will Smith, who was, you know, heavily implied that he dies at the end of, of I Am Legend. But I don't know if we ever actually saw it. Uh, I've heard rumors of a Mark Wahlberg-led sequel. And imagine if Mark Wahlberg, you know, was the, also thought he was the last man on Earth and was wandering around some other city at the same time. Um, you know, maybe he comes in and saves Will Smith at the end, and then there's a third movie where the two of them team up. I don't know. Uh, but there's also this script that uh, Warner Brothers had been developing. I think it was called The Garden at the Edge of the World or The Garden at the End of the World that they were sort of trying to retcon uh, as a I Am Legend-type project. Again, I don't know the specifics of what that uh, that script involved, but... The point is, is that I Am Legend is the one movie in Warner Brothers' top 25 that I think kind of screams out for J.J. and Bad Robot to, 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 you know, to give it that treatment. Whether that involves J.J. teaming up with Will Smith or, again, casting his own leading man, whoever that may be, uh, I, I think that, that combination is ripe with potential. Because all the other, you know, major IP is kind of claimed. Claimed. Um, I know Gremlins had been like a, a Katzenberg, Seth Graham Smith thing for a while, but 
yeah, I, I, you know, they, they've had years to put that together and, and, and it hasn't really gotten off the ground. So I think it's probably time to just entrust that to a different set of producers. Um, I mean, yeah, there, there's Sherlock Holmes and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and, and that kind of stuff. But I don't think Bad Robot's right for that. I would be surprised if Warner Brothers pulled the trigger on an Exorcist reboot relatively soon. Um, but again, not, that, that's just not J.J. Abrams sort of thing. I wonder if you could, you know, do something new with Oceans. I don't know that it necessarily needs to be all guys or all women. You know, if you could find a kind of just find a way to make a great heist type movie uh, that, that captures that kind of flavor, that that could be interesting. I liked what J.J. Abrams did with like a, a team up movie in Mission Impossible Three. Anyways, lots of interesting possibilities for him up on that lot, and I can't wait to see what Bad Robot comes up with because I, I really I do like their their sensibilities, even when you know movies don't completely hit the mark. Um, I like that they're trying stuff and, and hiring some interesting people. Uh, what else have we got this week? Face Off. They announced a Paramount announced a Face Off reboot. Oren Uziel is writing the script. Neil Moritz, uh, who's a Fast and Furious producer, he's going to produce it. Um, I think David Permit, uh, who was involved in the the first film, is coming back to EP. Kind of you know makes sense to have you know Neil Moritz do this. Like he's coming over from Sony to Paramount. They're probably like, hey, take a look at our action IP. What can you sort of turn into maybe the next Fast and Furious? I don't know that Face-Off lends itself to, you know, a franchise or, or sequels or anything. The first one obviously didn't, despite being a hit. But, you know, maybe they could figure out a way to have, you know, the bad guy live at the end or you know, just who, who knows what they could do. A lot of talk about who might star in this reboot, what direction you'd take it. On Twitter, when it was first announced, I was advocating for Denzel Washington and Sam Jackson just because I'd love them to go a little bit older. I'd love to see those guys go mano a mano. They're both great actors. If you got someone maybe like Antoine Fuqua to direct it, that would be super cool too. Um, or or you go female with it. I mean, when you look at you know just the way everything's sort of going these days, I think you could make an awesome female-driven face-off remake. And you could get a pretty awesome female filmmaker on it, too, I imagine. Uh, you know, like, Lexi Alexander is someone who, who people, like, throw out all the time to direct all kinds of different big movies. And, and I, you know, I, I can't see it. But I can actually see her pulling off a face-off remake. Um, I mean, listen, there, there are a lot of uh, capable people out there, male, female, whoever. Um so, man, it would be interesting to see who they could get, though, for Face Off. Like, that is a, a, a kind of marquee action title. I wonder if John Woo would even be willing to come back. After all, he was willing to, to remake his own uh, The Killer. So, I don't know. Face Off with a bigger budget, that would be pretty cool. I like it. Anyways, you let me know on Twitter who you guys think, you know, who you'd like to see in a Face Off remake. Uh, and what other 90s movies think that they should you know, tinker with like, you know, would you do Gone in 60 Seconds or a new Con Air? Should, should like, should we just be remaking Nicolas Cage's entire filmography, uh, filmography from the 90s? Like, I think The Rock is kind of untouchable, though. Um, what else do we got? Haley Steinfeld. This was big news. Just signing on to play or in early talks to play Kate Bishop in the Hawkeye series on Disney Plus. That's a big deal because Kate Bishop is expected to be a character who sort of transitions back and forth between the small screen and the big screen. I mean, Haley Steinfeld is a legitimate movie star. So if you are casting her in a Disney Plus series, you, you'd have to have designs on her for some kind of big screen role. Um, 
you know, she I think she's terrific. Like it, it's smart of Marvel to go out and get her. They may not have had anything like in the movies that are casting right now. Like we don't have anything for you in Eternals or Black Widow or whatever. But hey, we've got this TV role and it could lead to a bigger part in, in the, the big screen MCU. I think she'd be smart to take it. Um, especially if they are sort of moving in that young Avengers direction that has been rumored. But, uh, you know, like the fact that Warner Brothers didn't move on Haley Seinfeld sooner for like Batgirl or just like some role, like they're asleep at the wheel. Like, I think you got to kind of got to like lock these people in as early as possible, because once you join one universe, like that's 10 years basically that they've committed and won't be able to be in, in your universe. Some actors, you know, are fortunate enough to be able to travel back and forth between Marvel and DC, but... You know, they're typically playing smaller characters. Um, Tank Girl. Margot Robbie is developing a Tank Girl movie at MGM. I don't think that she's going to star in it. I don't know if she's necessarily attached to star in it. Now I think they'll probably wait until there's a script or even like a treatment. I don't even know what there is at this point. There's not much. I think it's kind of came out of a general meeting that Margot Robbie had over at MGM. They said, hey, listen, like these are the the library titles that they're looking to reboot. And, you know, MGM kind of scraping the barrel uh and it hasn't gone well for them like you know i liked child's play this summer but it didn't really you know break out the way that they wanted to the dirty rotten scoundrels remake the hustle did not take off so you know it's like at some point you got to like develop original stuff you can't just go into the library even though i get that that's like the, the first impulse but anyways tank girl is one of those movies in the library they control the rights I don't know anyone who read Tank Girl growing up, and the first Tank Girl movie is atrocious. Like, I, I wouldn't really want if, – if, if she was my client, I wouldn't necessarily want her to have anything to do with this. But, you know, again, given the given the age and, and the fact that there are all these female comic book movies, superhero movies getting made, we've got, you know, freaking Red Sonia's on the way. Like, yeah, why wouldn't you try to reboot Tank Girl if you're MGM? I think you got to keep the budget low. Like, you can't be making a $100 million Tank Girl movie, and I think even a 50 or $60 million Tank Girl movie could hurt, too. Like, if you you got to find someone who can just, like, do a lot with a little. Like, I mean, I see these indie movies all the time that maybe they look a little cheesy, but the the stuff that they accomplish on, the, on like, a $2, 3000000 million budget is incredible. I think if you, like, apply the Blumhouse model to a Tank Girl movie, it could be really interesting. Like, why can't Tank Girl look like Dread? I don't know how much Dread costs off the top of my head, but... Whether it was 20, 10, 20, 30 million, if you, if you can keep it in that sweet spot, like you're golden, especially if you get Margot attached. I, again, this, this is sort of a casting, a cast dependent thing. I wonder if Margot would like produce a movie with uh, starring Samara Weaving, who's like kind of like her lookalike. Um, I bet half the people watching the trailer wouldn't even be able to tell the difference. Um, but, anyways, it did, it recruited Miles Joris Parafeet to direct, who broke that story on Collider. He, you know, just directed this Dreamland project with Margot Robbie in it, uh, but he's like he's an indie guy, so you know maybe they they have that in mind too. Or like you know he he doesn't have a lot of big budget experience, not a lot of experience with effects driven stuff. So maybe he is trying to look make like a gritty indie, like a Dread, with a sort of you know visual style all its own. Um, either way, Tank Girl, something to keep an eye on. Not sure how real it is. It sounds like it's going to be pretty far down the line, considering Margot is, you know, wrapped up playing Harley Quinn in the DC universe. But we'll see. We've got Universal buying a couple of interesting new projects. They got one uh, outside the box. It's like a family adventure movie from the guys who did Freaks. 
which I quite liked, Adam Stein and Zach Lepofsky. Zach Lepofsky, somewhat, both of these guys were on On the Lot, actually, on Steven Spielberg's reality show back in the day. Uh, that's where they met, and, and you know they just started making the movies together, I think, in the last uh, few years. Freaks was actually pretty interesting. I don't know. I think it's out now. I don't I think it's out. I don't know if it is or not. But it's with Emile Hirsch and Bruce Dern. And Emile's daughter has, like, these sort of special powers. And, and, like, you know, I guess it's getting compared to, like, some of Spielberg's early work in the 80s. And, and I, get, I suppose I can see that. So, uh, you know, smart of Universal to get into, into business with those guys, see, you know, what they can develop. They also got this uh, project from Meredith Dawson, a rom-com called When Michael Met Carrie, dot, 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 and other people. Paul Feig's going to be producing that one. Uh, listen, the, the romantic comedy is, like, basically shifted over to Netflix. So I, I like that Universal is sort of trying to reclaim the genre. They've got Last Christmas coming up. I, I don't know how well it'll do with Henry Golding and Amelia Clark coming up. Um, it, didn't, it doesn't look necessarily great to me, but people really like those two. They, they certainly have big fan bases uh, of their own. So, yeah, wish and wish Universal the best of luck uh, with this rom-com idea from Meredith Dawson, who's going to direct it as well. Uh, I guess Universal really made it a point in that announcement to point out that uh, they've, they've been hiring female filmmakers left and right. They've got the photograph coming up, uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of others that uh, you can check out on the article um, on Collider. And I wanted to, you know, like combine those two. Like uh, <laughs> there's a little like fun internal discussion. Like, you know, should you be writing up separate articles for these announcements for SEO purposes, and it's like, guys, when there's one hook, which is, you know, the one studio buying both these projects, I think you, it's safe to combine them. So that's what we ended up doing. Um, but speaking of Paul Feig, he was also in uh, the news later this week, just a couple of days later. He's going to be directing this project called Dark Army, and this is kind of fascinating. It is not like a Dark Universe project, but it will, in fact, feature characters like, you know, Universal's classic monsters from uh, from their library. And I think Paul Feig's going to create some original monsters of his own. I don't know. I don't know if I'm Universal, if Paul Feig's the guy I'm entrusting my classic Universal monsters to. It depends which monsters they are. You know, if it was like Black Lagoon, I could see that. But I, I might give him some of the smaller ones rather than, like, giving him Wolfman or Dracula. That... I just – listen, I'm a big Paul Feig guy. Like, don't get me wrong. I really like him. I think he's great for the business uh, as a producer. I really like some of the, the movies he's directed, Bridesmaids, Spy, uh, The Heat. Um, I like his books. I like his TV show. But uh, Ghostbusters was bad. You know, I, I, like there's he's, – he's defended it and, and more power to him. But it, it was a bad movie. It was a miscalculation. And if I was Universal, I don't know that I would be giving massive IP like some of these Universal monsters, unless they were just like, unless they were just like bowled over by the idea. And the idea is unique; it is original. I don't know the specifics, but if you're combining old monsters with new monsters, like the, you know, that was a question that kind of came up in, in Mailbag this week. Uh, we didn't end up using it, but it was like, man, do you ever see Marvel like creating an original superhero? Because, or are they just going to like continue, you know, continue to tweak the the you know the characters that they have? I think it would be smart to create an original hero. I think it would be smart to create an original monster like Paul Feig, you know, intends to do here. It's all g- going to be about sort of how the old meshes with the new. Um, but uh, so again, bit of bit of a risk, bit of a gamble, I think, for Universal. 
but I do like Paul Feig. It's hard to just judge him on that one Ghostbusters movie. Again, I might have gone with somebody with a little bit more genre experience, but Paul Feig's been a solid producer for Universal. I understand why they sort of entrusted this to him. Um, what else? What else? What else? Millie Bobby Brown doing a Netflix movie with her sister, Paige Brown. It's called A Time Lost. It's like about two families. They don't necessarily get along, but they call a ceasefire when one of their teenage daughters gets cancer. I assume Millie Bobby Brown is going to play uh, one of those daughters, whether it's the one with cancer, although we, you know, we, we've seen her bald before. Maybe she has to shave her head again for Stranger Things and is like, hey, while I'm at it, why not just bang out a cancer movie? I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if her sister Paige Brown will play the other role either. I don't know how old Paige Brown is, but... You know, this will give Millie Bobby Brown a chance to show that she can really act because she's kind of just spent the last three years, as good as she is as Eleven on Stranger Things, she kind of just spends the last two or three years getting nosebleeds, you know, turning her her hand uh, in a counterclockwise direction or whatever it is uh, to, to get to, to control things. I mean, I want to see a little bit more out of Millie Bobby Brown before before I anoint her like, you know, the next great child actress. So uh, maybe a time loss in this Netflix movie will be just the trick. It could be an awards contender. I don't know. It's being written by my pal Anna Klassen, who's a really good writer. She wrote the J.K. Rowling biopic uh, script that you know may or may not ever be made, but it's called When Lightning Strikes. It was on the blacklist. So you know Anna Klassen's career heating heating up. She's also doing that uh, Dorothy and Alice movie for Netflix. So they really like her over there. Um, Millie Bobby Brown. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. It didn't love her in, in that Godzilla sequel, but. I don't think uh, those Godzilla movies know how to treat the human cast at all. Um, Tom Hanks doing a movie called Major Matt Mason. God, I, I didn't even click on this article when it came out because this is something that he's been tied to for like basically since I started reporting. This is like some old toy or I think uh, that used to be around when Tom Hanks was a kid or something. I don't know. Doesn't seem like a movie anybody is interested in or asking for. Another bit of a head scratcher from tom hanks but again he's kind of a one for you one for me guy he just uh you know he's getting great reviews for playing mr rogers in a beautiful day in the neighborhood um so maybe maybe this is one of those movies where it's like listen i'm just i'm just doing this and you're you're in or you're out but uh major matt mason not necessarily something that excites me terribly um colin trevorrow made a jurassic world short film again this is not something i necessarily plan to watch it's going to be air on sunday night on fx but this is what I'll say. This is interesting from Universal. This is a, this is a, a, a savvy move because you can't you you want to keep the brand out there, and it's tough with these big movies when you know you have a Jurassic World movie coming out every two, three, four years, whatever it is. It's not like Marvel where you have a movie coming out every six months to remind you, like MCU, MCU, MCU. Um, and so I think you're going to see more of this. I think this is going to start a trend in the industry. You're going to see studios do more short form work. Like Universal did with this Jurassic World short, you're gonna you know, you're gonna have the original directors too. Like, this is a chance for Colin Trevorrow to play around. I don't know what the budget of this thing is. I don't know even know who's in it. I haven't I haven't read or watched anything about it beyond there's a headline that said there's there's a Jurassic World and and Frosty has a great a lot of great coverage on this on the site. So make sure to check that out. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if more and more studios. In the in the in, in the two to three year wait in between these movies, if they start doing these little short film drops, because it's just a way to to keep the audience engaged. Um, so ni- nice job by Universal on that one. 
Over on Netflix, they picked up uh, Alexander Payne's next movie. It's untitled, but it is basically the project that was known as My Saga, which was based on like this New York Times Magazine travelogue about this writer and, and, and his buddy, and they take this road trip <clears throat> through America. They're changing the buddy, the photographer buddy, to, uh, to, to a, uh, a daughter. To a teenage daughter, so it's going to be a father-daughter story. I should have guessed all along, since there's only so many Norwegian slash Danish, you know, type actors that you could get to star in a movie these days. But it's going to star Mads Mikkelsen. He's in final negotiations. I love the idea of Alexander Payne working with Mads Mikkelsen, who really is a brilliant actor. I mean, in everything that we've seen him in, The Hunt, uh, Hannibal. Um, and, and Arctic, obviously, which just came out uh, earlier this year. And, and God, I wish I wish that he was getting more like awards consideration. I wish that there was more conversation around that movie Arctic because it was really something. So check that out if you haven't seen it. It's a great rental. Um, and yeah, Alexander Payne, he was supposed to do this movie, The Menu. Like a, a dark comedy with Ray Fiennes and Emma Stone, but I think that project sort of is, is rebooting and starting from scratch. I don't, I don't think Payne's attached anymore. I don't think that those cast members are attached anymore. So uh, maybe they're just you know waiting on a new draft of the script. I don't know, but uh, yeah, Payne. Well, you know, he was he had that lined up, and now this is going to be his next thing for Netflix. Um, don't know if Netflix will be the home for this, but John Mulaney announced a new special. He said it's going to be a children's variety show. I had to write about that yesterday for the site. I love John Mulaney. I think he's one of the funniest people on the planet. I love his stand-up. I'm kind of a stand-up connoisseur, as we'll talk about later uh, in the show. Um, but, yeah, ch- like the idea of a children's variety show, and, and I used to watch 3-2-1 Contact that's a great, great uh, show and reading Rainbow and all this like, you know, great children's entertainment. I don't know if, if it's, you know, there's no shortage of children's entertainment these days, but I don't know if it's as classic as, as those shows or maybe I'm just looking at it through, you know, my own perspective as a kid. But if John Mulaney can sort of capture that feel in this new special, you know, it'll definitely be worth watching. I just think that these kids have to be absolutely hilarious, like good boys level, because... I, like I've never been big on. I'm a 35 year old man. I don't. I don't have any kids. When I was a, I was a camp counselor. I went to summer camp for 12 years. As a camp counselor for four or five of them. I could only deal with the older kids, like the 14, 15 year old kids. I can't deal with little kids. Um, so I don't know how old these kids will be. How talented they they will be. Apparently they're going to be doing musical bits and comedy sketches. It sounds interesting. And props to John Mulaney for at least you know playing up uh, playing with the format. I'm just saying you know it, it better really be worth it because otherwise. You know, we could have had a John Mulaney special for that hour. Um, what else? What else? What else? God, I saw this crazy poll today that nearly 60% of moviegoers prefer to see fewer trailers at the movies. First of all, all these polls, any poll that you read, it's bullshit. Okay? Don't listen to any polling. These companies merely have to justify the fact that they exist. Like, do I, it's not like they talk to all the moviegoers. They talk to, like, 1,000 or 2,000 people outside of some mall in Burbank, you know? And, and then they just apply this, like, blanket. 60% of people, they don't, they don't like all these trailers. I agree that the trailer situation has gotten out of hand at certain chains, like an AMC where the pre-show is, like, 20 to 25 minutes long. And it's just trailer after trailer. And most of these trailers, you know, they're already bow on – they debut online. So it's like by the time you get to the theater, you've seen everything. I don't actually – you know, because I'm seeing most movies in press screenings, I don't actually watch a lot of trailers in the theaters unless I'm buying a ticket. And, you know, I probably see 30 or 40% of the movies each year. I buy a ticket to a theater. But 
three to five, I think, is the magic number. Anything more than five trailers, which if you think is like two and a half minutes each, it's basically 12, 13 minutes worth of trailers, maybe a, a two, two minutes for a hit the concession stand, and here is the emergency exits. That's 15 minutes. That sounds like right to me. I wouldn't want – I don't need seven, eight trailers. So, like, I, I, I suppose I agree, but then part of me is also like most people aren't like me. They're not watching trailers online, I don't think. Uh, like, you know, my dad's not watching trailers online, and if I was my dad, yeah, then the trailers are, like, the best part of the movie. I, I want to sit there and see as many as you can. Like, I'm, I'm shelling out God knows how much for parking and for concessions and, and for the movie ticket. I want a whole evening of entertainment, even if that makes, you know, movies are getting longer and longer. And when you add in these pre-shows, it's like The Irishman is a three-and-a-half-hour movie. Now it's a four-hour movie, you know, if it was playing at AMC, which it, it obviously won't be. Um, okay, comedy. Going back to comedy, uh, Shane Gillis. Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, listen, I am somebody who's put their foot in their mouth uh, plenty of times, but it's not usually like this. <laughs> this guy gets announced uh, as a new SNL cast member yesterday, along with Bowen Yang, who's like the first you know, in, uh, cast member f- uh, from East Asian. Uh, of East Asian descent, excuse me. And it just, it's like, it just so happens the same day, this guy Shane Gillis has these racial slurs resurface in this video, uh, courtesy of this guy Seth Simon. Uh, Simon's who I follow on Twitter. He's like a really great, like, independent comedy journalist. I, I sign up to like his newsletter and everything. You know, some of it's like really in the weeds, nitty gritty. Like, here's like a 20,000 word article on UCB finances. Um, but like I, I read all this stuff because I have to because I, I, I want to be informed about my industry. And yeah, when he when he tweeted that yesterday, this video, and it, it didn't like call that much attention to itself. I, I read I, I watched it and I was like, oh, boy, like, I knew right off the bat like this is going to be something. And if I worked at the rap, I would have guaranteed I would have put my hand up, said, I've got something. And we would have had that story up within five to 10 minutes and, and led the conversation on it. Uh, as it so happened, it took about an hour after I tweeted it out for like the trades to come in. I'm telling you, I swear I give these trades some of their best ideas. They just have to follow my Twitter feed and then they write about what I tweet about. Um, but yeah, it wasn't long before the trades sort of sniffed this one out. And then it was just, it was a mess for this kid. Like everybody piled on, um, and, and listen, rightfully so, like, like it, it wasn't clear that he was doing like a bit or making a joke. He kind of just sounded like he was like acting like a racist asshole, uh, a racist asshole. And, and I'll tell you, Adam Chitwood on Collider.com did not spare any, uh, words. He did not mince words. Like he fucking went in on this guy. Um, and partially, you know, that was because of his fucking non-apology. Like, you know, it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night last night, and I'm watching uh, Euphoria with with my girlfriend, and I show her this apology, which is like, I'd be happy to apologize to anyone who's actually offended. I, I wanted to just troll him and to be like, well, actually, I am offended. I would like a personal apology. But it's like, you know, he does not owe me an apology. He owes, uh, you know, Chinese people an apology. But, man, just... It's it's got to be tough for young people these days, like because everything is online and there's always as soon as you you know make it to the top, which SNL you know certainly is, like literally as soon as you make it to the top, like the day you make it to the top, there will be people looking to take you down, and again that's happened to me before and it fucking sucks, and it's not fair, 
Um, but in this case, man, tough to argue. Like Shane Gillis, you got to do better than that on an apology. I'm a comedian who pushes boundaries. What is the boundary that you're pushing? Not hiring a publicist? Like, shut up. Shut up. Don't say anything or get a publicist to help you craft an actual, sincere, thoughtful apology. Like, or just like, you know, have be, be actually sorry. Um, so just an ugly situation all around. I'd be shocked if this guy made it onto SNL. I'd be absolutely fucking shocked. Like, I just there's a lot of funny people out there. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know how Lauren Michaels can go through with that one in the same season, you know, in which Bowen Yang is becoming a full time cast member or whatever. Um, Game of Thrones prequel, big news announced there. I don't give a shit though. <laughs> It's going to be set 300 years, I don't know, before the fall of the House of Targaryen. I don't know, the Diarnus Targaryen. Is that Amelia Clark? I don't have any fucking idea. Watch two episodes of the show. I'm not watching any of these fucking prequels. HBO, I love you. I love you to death. This isn't for me. Um, what was for me, though, was the Gary Goldman special. We're going to stick with comedy. John Mulaney, Shane Gillis, Gary Goldman. HBO showed me his new special. Um, I don't even know if there's an embargo if I'm allowed to talk about it or not. But I am Gary's number one fan, like legitimately. Uh, I have listened to each one of his albums easily over 100 times. Um, loved his stuff. My mom loved his stuff. We used to play him in the car together and laugh. And she'd just say, you never know. Um, and so Gary has a new special out, and it, and it, and special is the right word for it. Uh, it is not as funny. I didn't think it was as funny as his other uh, albums, but it's not really intended to be. This is like a one-man show kind of thing, and it delves into Gary Goleman's battle with depression, um, and it was really – it was just really well observed uh, by by, you know – Michael, I think it was Michael Bonfiglio was the director, but also Judd Apatow is the producer. You know, Judd did the the, the Zen Diaries documentary about Gary Shandling. Um, his his own stand up sort of dealt you know delved into his own past. Uh, Judd Judd's great you know Netflix. I think it was Netflix uh, special. It may have been HBO, but I think it was Netflix. Um, Judd Apatow is just a special guy, and he has an eye for special stories and. I, you know, had no idea that get this, that depression was something that Gary struggled with, but I really got a feel for what it's like, uh, you know, ha- having listened to this special. I mean, obviously, I, I know people who have struggled with depression uh, as well, and, and it's tough, man. Like, there's no, there's no easy cure. There's no easy fix. Um, but, you know, one, one fix, at least, is comedy, and it's great to see gary you know live to f- to fight another day and to tell more jokes and to you know cheer up other people who, who may be struggling with depression so when that hits whenever that is gary has a small role in joker by the way i think it comes out that same weekend um make sure to give that a shot on hbo because it's definitely worth uh, the the hour or hour and 10 minutes that uh, it's going to cost you um staying with hbo for a second finished euphoria last night with stephanie pretty crazy show kind of tapered off there towards the end i really liked you know like the the sort of middle when it sort of hit its stride um so you know i i didn't necessarily love the last episode but these characters are, are pretty interesting i love the way that it's told like sam levinson we, i watched assassination nation again this week because i hadn't seen it since its toronto debut I, you know that movie the message oh god there's a lot of screaming going on outside 
in the Collider office. Uh, sorry, guys, if you're hearing any of that. Um, Assassination Nation, like, I'm not sure what it was necessarily trying to say, but it definitely had an energy and style all its own, and Sam Levinson brought that to Euphoria. Great cast. I mean, Zendaya really took things to another level. I like this Jacob Elordi guy who plays Nate Jacobs. Um, yeah, like, he, he, you know, if he was 10 years older, he would have made, a, like, a good Christian Grey. But I can definitely see him getting some feature work. I'm going to keep my eye, eye on him. Euphoria will be back for a second season. Not sure when. Uh, I assume next summer. Uh, there was a whole bunch of TV stuff, though, this week. Guys, I was up to my eyeballs in TV news. I announced John Lithgow is joining Jeff Bridges in the FX series The Old Man. That's going to be directed by John Watts. He's coming on to direct the pilot and executive produce. So nice little uh, payday for John Watts, and, and he also uh, raises the profile of that series. HBO found its magic in Kareem for Adam McKay's uh, Lakers series. It's kind of interesting. This guy, Quincy Isaiah, and then Solomon Hughes used to play ball for University of California, Berkeley, UCAL Berkeley. Uh, and then John C. Riley coming in to replace Michael Shannon. So he almost went with this Magic and Cream story last week, and then at the very last second, HBO had sort of asked us to pull back, and I was like, what? like I, I didn't know why. I obviously, uh, you know, agreed, because um, uh, we'd, you know, sort of agreed to an embargo with a couple of the trades. And I love that Collider is breaking this stuff now at the same time as these trades, because uh, I'm sure it pisses them, <laughs> pisses them off. But uh, so HBO asked us to pull back, and I, and I didn't know why. I was like, did one of these actors get cold feet and, and decide not to play Magic or Kareem, or did they find somebody else? Like, did, did uh, the first choice or something become available? And uh, no, it was it was because the Michael Shannon thing didn't work out. I guess there were some creative differences. I don't know what the specifics are, but it, John C. Riley is going to be coming in. Adam McKay's old pal from Talladega Nights and Step Brothers. He's going to be playing Dr. Jerry Buss now. Michael Shannon uh, that frees up his schedule. Um, you know, we reported him as part of the, the expected cast for Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. And, you know, I, I think I had said in the article that there might be a scheduling issue. And I was alluding to the HBO series, which which had not been announced at that point. But now that the HBO series is sort of, uh, you know, off the table for Michael Shannon, I do expect that he will close a deal to, to be in the uh, Nightmare Alley. And speaking of which, Tony Collette, in an interview with Christina Radish that's up on Collider today, she confirmed that she is going to star opposite Bradley Cooper in Nightmare Alley. It's a big role for Tony Collette. I don't even know. You, you may even consider her like the female lead over like Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, possibly. Um, but, man, what a cast between those four and, uh, and then, you know, potentially Michael Shannon and a couple of others. Like uh, like Hellboy, like Ron Perlman. Um, Ken Watanabe joined Ansel Elgort in Tokyo Vice. That's an HBO Max crime series set in Tokyo that I think sounds really cool. I think it could be Ansel's sort of answer to uh, the Miles Teller series, Too Old to Die Young. That was on Amazon earlier this summer from Nick Reffin. Um, yeah, Tokyo Vice. This, I mean, Tokyo is a fascinating setting for any sort of police story. It's going to explore the underbelly uh, of that world and uh, and yeah Ken Watanabe is going to be sort of Ansel Elgort's guide through it all. He's a great actor, um love his stuff and listen HBO Max may, may, like this could end up being like a breakout series for them. They have a lot of interesting stuff in the works. I think it uh, news dropped this week about a Julia Child series uh, with Joan Cusack. Joan Cusack has been trying to play Julia Child for like 10 15 years. Uh, and now it looks like it's finally going to happen over on HBO Max. And then the big story this week, which I happened to break, was Alexander Skarsgård being cast as Randall Flagg 
in the Stand series on CBS All Access. That hails from Josh Boone, who's putting together a pretty cool cast. Uh, James Marsden, Whoopi Goldberg got confirmed as Mother Abigail this week. Like, you know, CBS did their whole, like, announcement thing on The View uh, where, where Whoopi can, you know, said she's going to do it. And they announced a few new cast members. But, yeah, at that point I'd heard Skarsgård was, like, basically all but set. Like, had already sort of... Uh, you know, was in advanced negotiations if if the deal wasn't closed already. And it's like, man, CBS, if you are going to, like, do this whole big, like, announcement thing on The View with Stephen King, you got to, like, bring the heat. You can't be dropping names like Brad William Henke and Joe Von Adepo and Owen Teague. Like, listen, I, I like all those guys. They're all good actors. They don't mean jack shit to the public at large. So it's like if you want to make waves, like you know, let Whoopi have her moment, uh, but then you got to drop that that fucking Alexander Skarsgård story. So don't be mad at me, like that. That's a failure on your own part. I don't care if the deal is, you know, like if the deal's not done. You got to get on the fucking phone with Business Affairs, and you got to say Business Affairs, I need this deal done by 11 a.m. Uh, when the View starts taping because. Like, that would have been an awesome sort of reveal on The View that would have gone viral. I mean, you know, the story, I suppose, did go viral anyways because of Whoopi. But, yeah. I mean, you can't you can't be mad at me for putting that name out there. That's the whole show, Randall Flagg. As soon as I get the name, I'm going to put it out there. Uh, and, yeah, pretty confident that that one is going to close. Um, what else? What else? What else? There's got to be a few other things, guys. She said... The Weinstein book, the the whole uh, the, from the New York Times reporters, Jody Kanner, Megan Tui, uh, they released their book. She said, "I intend to to, to check it out because I want to see who you know. How did they tell me about this investigation? Tell me how it worked from a journalist perspective. Who do you go to? How do you get confirmation for this stuff? I'm going to tell you guys a story. Uh, so, all right, yeah, I'm going to tell this one. So, years ago, when I was a reporter at the Wrap." I read an article uh, that Gavin Pallone had written for The Hollywood Reporter. Gavin Pallone, b- big producer in town, uh, producer on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he had written something in The Hollywood Reporter, a column that alluded to uh, a, a major mogul and, and you know some, some ugly cases of misbehavior. But he obviously couldn't name, name the name. And I called Gavin. And again, I don't reveal sources. Uh, but I called Gavin and, uh, and I was like, man, can you say like who you're talking about? And he was like, well, who do you think it is? And I was like, Harvey, I just took a guess. He didn't tell me I was wrong. Um, and I started asking around and I went to my boss with it, uh, Sharon Waxman. And when I told Sharon, you know, uh, she said, come on in and close the door. Sharon had tried to break this story herself uh, at the New York Times, and I think that, you know, back then, the New York Times very, very in bed with Harvey Weinstein. Like, this is something important to remember, and I'm sure that Jody and Megan are aware of it as well. Like, I'm not saying the New York Times covered for Harvey. I'm sure that other journalists at the New York Times over the years tried to, to, to get that story, as Sharon did. But I think that the New York Times really made it difficult for her. To, you know, like they had marketing department. They liked those Weinstein dollars that were coming in with all the, you know, the full page movie ads each Oscar season. I just don't know how hard they really pressed 
Uh, and, th- and that may be like an unfair allegation to make because it's a secondhand sort of allegation. I'm just sort of remembering a conversation that I had with Sharon, who is remembering a conversation she had years ago. Uh, but yeah, like it was, it was discouraging. And, and, and like, sh- I think Sharon had done some, some research of her own, particularly with a model who was uh, assaulted, I think in, in Rome and Italy and, um, you know, she, she had maybe, I don't know if it was a person on the record or speaking off the record, maybe they couldn't use the name. I just know, like, I was, you know, when they talk about how many journalists tried to bring down Harvey in the past and just were unable to do it, I was one of those people. And it's like, man, like, what would my career look like? If I had been able to get that story, and I think it would have been difficult for a number of reasons. I think that a lot of these women were simply more comfortable telling their stories to other women, and that is obviously understandable. Um, you know, I, I want women in this industry to feel comfortable coming to me with those types of allegations and stories because, you know, just because I'm a man, like I, I'm not going to just like forget about it or slough it off. Like I am one of the. I don't want to say few reporters or rare reporters because I think there's a lot of people in this town who are, you know, doing great work uh, and, and fighting for truth and justice and all that. But I, I think I'd like to think of myself as someone who could be approached and, and would have the the drive to follow through and follow up on, on that story and actually, you know, look into certain things. Um, or maybe that's just how I want to think of myself. Like, I'm sure that story couldn't have been easy for those women, for those uh, two, you know, reporters to land. Um, and I can't wait to read about how they ultimately did it, you know, because I think it'll make me a better journalist. It was definitely something that I wasn't really prepared for back then. And um, and it was a fight that, you know, a young company like The Rap maybe couldn't afford to fight, you know, given all you – know, like when you have the, the New York Times legal department backing you, like – that that's sort of different um and you know maybe the the rap would have been left exposed or something i don't know but i do know that that sharon and i both uh definitely tried to pursue that and uh you know if i maybe if we'd been able to report it sooner we could have stopped some of these incidents from happening some of these later incidents i don't know uh, but either way, uh, that is definitely the industry book to buy this week, and uh, I definitely intend to do that. Um, what else this week? I think – all right, Amazon. Okay, so last week uh, I went on Meet the Movie Press again. I reunited with my, my boy Simon Thompson. We had Jimmy O from Joe Blow on with us, and he's, uh, Simon asked us to come up with three things that we'd like to talk about from the fall festivals from Tiff and Telluride. I emailed him Parasite, which was sort of like, you know, the talk of the fall festivals, really. And then these two very small movies called The Vast of Night and The Sound of Metal. I don't think anybody was really like, you know, if you'd, if you, you'd ask anybody to talk about Tiff or Telluride, I don't think those are like the two movies that are top of mind. But you know what? I think differently than other people. And they're top of my mind. And guess who else they were top of? They were top of Amazon's mind because they bought both of them. Um, the Vast of Night, super tiny little uh, genre movie, I think from Andrew Patterson. Uh, I haven't seen it. Haven't even seen it. Came close to seeing it like a couple months ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I basically I had lunch months and months ago with this horror producer, J.D. Lifshitz, who, man, he this kid is a character. Uh, he produced Contracted. Um, he's, he's a nice Jewish boy, and I like his taste. And he's a real, he's a real schmoozer and hustler. 
Uh, and he goes, you got to keep an eye on this movie, The Vast of Night, because it was it really impressed me. And, like, this guy's very talented. And, you know, they made it for nothing. And and, and so I, I tracked down the producer and I introduced myself and I tried to get a link. And they even offered me a link at one point, but I didn't respond in time. And by the by, basically by the time I responded, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm ready to watch this now. Like, I've come up for air. Like, you know, my, my plate is clear. Let's, let's do this. Uh, he kind of went radio silent. But it was because... They had this Amazon deal lurking. Uh, it was just announced, I think, the night of the, the movie screening in Toronto. It's played a, you know, a couple of other festivals. But, uh, yeah, like, you know, keep an eye out for this movie, Vassive and I. I can't wait to see it. I've heard nothing but good things. It sounds like a real throwback. And th- this guy's going to be, like, a leading voice in, in genre cin- cinema for years to come, especially if anim- Amazon is backing him and, you know, has anything to say about it. You know, the same way that A24 has sort of gotten behind Ari Aster – I could see Amazon sort of making this guy their their horror guy. They also got this movie, The Sound of Metal, which is with Riz Ahmed, uh, Ahmed as a drummer who is losing his hearing. It's from Darius Martyr, who co-wrote Place Beyond the Pines, which is one of my favorite movies of the decade. Um, you know that that's sort of sort of what made it a must see for me. I heard this movie like it's shot and the way that like the sound design, it, it's very interesting because it sort of replicates the. Uh, feeling of going deaf, I suppose, or that's what I've read. I think someone passed out in the theater. They had, you know, they had to call the ambulance in. Um, so I can't wait to see that. I think these are two smart pickups by Amazon. I don't think that they're going to reverse Amazon's fortunes necessarily at the box office. Again, I don't know if these are even theatrical releases um, because you know to release a movie wide, you got to pump in tens of millions of dollars to promote it, and I, you know I don't know that these movies call for that, but. You know, to have these as prime exclusives, that's pretty interesting. I wonder if that could get some people to sign up who maybe hadn't signed up before. I mean, you know, these aren't like, you know, The Irishman or Michael Bay's Six Underground. But, you know, to a certain segment of the population, people who care about good indie cinema, these are two pretty, you know, interesting titles that are very high on my list of movies I'd want to see. Another movie that jumped to the top of that list is uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That trailer dropped this week. That that's like a movie that, you know, if you told me about it, I'd be like, eh, period. You know, lesbian romance. Eh, I don't know if it's for me. I might skip it. But the, the trailer just looked sumptuous. It looked gorgeous, um, and just like there seemed to be like a real intensity behind this this romance between these two women. It's about a, a painter who's sort of hired to paint a portrait of this woman, so that the, you know they can send the portrait off to this. Man who's thinking of marrying the woman, he, you know, he wants to see her. Photographer, photographs d- don't exist then, so uh, so she yeah she has to paint her, but like paint her in secret because I think she's like uncomfortable just sitting there being painted, uh, and then it, it turns into this like burning lo- love affair. Um, it sounds really interesting. Reviews have been tsh- raves across the board. Uh, a lot of people thought it was their favorite you know movie from the fall festival, so that is high on the must see list couple of other things matt and trey uh matt stone trey parker the south park guys they were talking about a new potential new movie in a, a new interview with uh, thr to promote the new season of south park like i you know those guys got to get back behind a camera i don't think that they want to do anything with south park but yeah it's like what are you waiting for fellas like uh you know south park bigger longer uncut was really freaking good 
Um, Orgasmo has will always have a spot in my heart. I'll always have a soft spot for that one. Uh, so, yeah, I want to see these guys, you know, base, basketball. I want to see these guys make another movie. Um, and it sounds like they are, you know, putting together some killer ideas for that. So hopefully they'll hurry up because, God, we need more funny movies. We need more comedies out there. Studios have given up on it. Antonio Brown's situation, the less said the better. I'm not going to get into it. Those The allegations are ugly and very believable. And... You know, I don't know how he wasn't put on the NFL's, you know, commissioner's exempt list. I don't know if he's going to end up playing this week for the Patriots. I don't know if he deserves to. It's just I don't even want to, like, think about it because it's the whole thing is just ugly. But, you know, apparently neither the Raiders nor the Patriots knew about the situation. So at least I can uh, sleep easy in that regard. Um Two Netflix projects I just wanted to put on your radar because they're definitely on mine. I haven't seen them yet. Criminal and Unbelievable. That's two uh, crime series I hear Unbelievable really does a great job of, uh, you know, dealing with the sensitivity around, like, a a rape investigation. Uh, It's basically about a girl who, like, you know, uh, is raped and then uh, she files a report and they say, you know, you made it up. This is a false report. And it turns out years later she's vindicated. Criminal is a very ambitious series. It's, like, set in four different countries. Uh, you know, following, I think it's 12 episodes, you know, different cast for each country. I don't know if everything like links up or, or what, but sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to give that a watch. And then uh, we're going to close the show today with actually talking about the things that I did watch. Um, so let's see. Let's start with The Goldfinch. The Goldfinch, I got out of the movie and <laughs> uh, Roxy, Ben Babe, and they were like, well, that's the worst movie of the year. And I'm like, you guys are nuts. You guys just don't see enough movies then if you think that's the worst movie of the year. It was certainly disappointing and it was certainly frustrating because that trailer, I watched the trailer on the drive home and it, I teared up again. I, I, like, I, I cried. The trailer is that good. Uh, and I cried during the movie, too, because, you know, this is a story about a, a boy who's lost his mother. I obviously lost my mother about two years ago. Um, so it, it it definitely got me uh, at times on an emotional level. But, yeah, there were other stuff that was just like didn't really love Ansel Elgort, felt a little miscast. I liked Oakes Fegley a lot, who plays the, the, the younger version of that character. And I like the older Boris played by Aniran Barnard, and I liked uh, Jeffrey Wright an awful lot. I thought Jeffrey Wright was was really uh, wonderful in this movie. But it, it's like, apparently it's like a seven or 800-page book. The, the story is just sprawling. It's all over the place, and the movie was two and a half hours. It just, it was so long. It was It was a bit of a slog. It all comes down to, like, I don't even know how to say this, like, like there, you know, there, there's a shootout towards the end of the movie, and then the whole reason for like the movie to exist is like, uh, hey, like you know, after that shootout, like you you were knocked out, and uh, you know, I don't I, I don't want to say it without spoiling it, but it's just like everything happens while the protagonist is asleep. <laughs> um, it was yeah, frustrating. I don't think that has any real awards chances whatsoever. Um, I mean, kudos to Warner Brothers for making, you know, adult dramas. I just think that, yeah, there, there, this maybe would have worked as like a, a streaming series on Warner Media, like a four-hour miniseries or something. As it stands, I can't really recommend it. I don't think it's a total bust. It's definitely not the worst movie of the year. I think people are being hard on it because it is, you know, melodrama. I like melodrama. Um, 
But yeah, this one had some problems. Hustlers uh, fared a lot better with me. Very, very entertaining movie by Lorreen Scafaria, who did uh, The Meddler um, and Seeking a Friend at the, uh, for the End of the World. I didn't really care for that one, but The Meddler was, was, was good, and this was very good. It, you know, it, it, it is exactly what the headlines have indicated. It's, it plays like G, uh, sorry, G fellas, good fellas with G strings, good fellas with G strings. It's really a tale of female friendship. Um, not enough Lizzo, not enough Cardi B for my taste. And I can't believe that at one point Dakota Johnson was going to star in this movie instead of Constance Wu. Uh, I think that, you know, Constance Wu, like, in real life, I think the woman was Asian. Um, and, and so, you know, Constance was, was a much more accurate uh, casting pick. But uh, she was very good in this movie. Like, she, say what you will about her off screen, whether she's a diva or not, she can act. Um, and, and so can J-Lo. I mean, J-Lo, I've always liked J-Lo. I think she's incredible and out of sight. She's very good in Selena. She is, she's really something in this movie. Do I think that she's going to win an Oscar for Hustlers? No. Uh, I think David Poland sort of said something to that effect yesterday and, and he, you know, he offered good, solid industry perspective. I think it's totally possible she could get a nomination because there's two scenes in the movie where she kind of loses her cool and she gets angry. Like at one point she wrestles Constance Wu, uh, a phone out of Constance Wu's hands. And it's like those are the sort of Oscar moments that you need to cement a nomination because the rest of it's just sort of like, you know, good times and, and stripping and spending money and wearing furs. But like it's when the shit hits the fan and that's how you get your Oscar nomination. Unfortunately, this movie had those moments. It did like the I thought it was sort of missing some emotion uh, until the very end. And the very end did get me emotionally. And so it sent me out on the of the theater on, on a high note. Um I think that the music's all wrong at the end. Uh, like it, it plays like this, you know, like a typical movie score, uh, you know, during the credits. And I think you got to send people out of that theater with like stripper music and and like you know movie music that you can dance to. Uh, so I think that's a miscalculation at the very very end of that movie. But at least there was some emotion in the climax that uh, that really brought it up a notch for me. Um, anyways, I think Hustler's going to do very well this month. I uh, also saw Lucy in the Sky yesterday. That was a bust, unfortunately. I thought it, the trailer made it look terrific. But it, no, Holly just can't resist sort of like the tabloid elements of this story. I didn't think it needed that, them at all. Natalie Portman, this is like based on the, the story of the astronaut and like the, the love triangle. Uh, and I think it's a great idea. Someone who goes up to space and sees her entire life, in, in, you know, in her eye. Everyone she's ever known, every place she's ever been. And, and how that can just, like, change your mind, like, your, your entire brain and, like, warp your entire perspective on life and the world. You know, you're, you're someplace where the laws of, of physics don't apply. Like, everything is just th – that was great. And Natalie Portman, watching her act is like watching Michael Jordan play basketball. Like, she is just a tremendous actress. But, you know, Noah Hawley just totally loses command of this story in the second half. The narrative goes right off the rails. It becomes, like, this bad – TV movie of the week kind of thing with like random visual effects out of straight out of Legion and God, the niece, there's like a niece character in this. She, she may be the most annoying character of the year in any movie. I didn't know what her function was uh, until the very end of the movie. And then it becomes clear what her function is. And that function is super frustrating because it's like, there, it just takes all the danger out of the movie. It's totally anticlimactic. 
Uh, yeah, very, very frustrating to watch. A, a powerhouse Portman performance, like always, but this is not uh, this is not an awards contender either. Um, fortunately, I got to watch the taste out with the Aeronauts. I made a tough decision last night. Ad Astra was screening. Did I want to drive an hour in rush hour to Burbank to go see Ad Astra, which comes out next week, or did I want to drive 10 minutes to see the Aeronauts, which doesn't come out till December? It was an easy sort of choice for me. Um, and you know what? I think I made the right one. I mean, I've heard great things about Ad Astra. Don't get me wrong. Brad Pitt, please forgive me. I will see your movie within the next eight days. But the Aeronauts, I really, I really liked it. Like, I was surprised how much I liked it. Um, it's just like an old school sort of adventure movie. It's safe for the family. I cannot believe this is going to be on Amazon two weeks after it hits theaters. Like, this needs. To, this is a movie to watch on the big screen. It looks fantastic. It it had me freaking out in the first 10, 20 minutes because I'm not great with heights. And, I mean, the movie sent a fucking hot air balloon. And it just looks so photorealistic. I was like, my palms were sweating. I was getting anxious watching it. Uh, eventually, I, I, I did settle in. I kept telling myself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. Um, but I, I really respected it. Felicity Jones does excellent work, and she is really putting together quite a little uh, resume for herself. Uh, this coming on the heels of last year's Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie, On the Basis of Sex. Again, she didn't get a nomination for that, I don't think. Didn't, um, you know, didn't light up the box office or, or score with critics in the way that they expected. But she earned my respect uh, with that, and she, and she earned even more of it with this one. Like, she is at, it's a physical, physically demanding role for her, and, and she really acquits herself quite nicely. Um, yeah, like th- this was like the Felicity Jones I guess I wanted in uh, in, in Rogue One or whatever it was. Um, I think that'll pretty much do it. I think that'll pretty much do it this week. I mean, I could do a rumor of the week. Do I want to piss off any studios today, though? Do I just want to get out of the week? I think I do. Yeah. So uh, we we will pick up rumor of the week next week. I will come up with something juicy for you guys. Uh, you know, we talk about a lot of Batman rumors. If you, you know, if you miss movie talk on Wednesday, go check out the Wednesday episode of movie talk with myself and Mark and Draco. Cause we get into all kinds of Batman rumors, including some names that, uh, are apparently making the rounds for Catwoman. I hadn't heard them myself necessarily, but everything I'm like, I'm like the sore in it. Everything just makes its way to me at the end. Um, that'll do it guys. You just made it through the Snyder cup podcast episode eight. I'm Jeff Snyder. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Cameo, and at the Insnyder. Anything you know, we can do another mailbag. Just hit me up with questions. Uh, do hashtag Snyder Cut. I'll be I'll be sure to check it before each episode because uh, I'd like to answer some of your questions. If you guys if you ever need a recommendation, you can always check out my blog, theinsnyder.blogspot.com. Um, that'll do it. Yeah, guys, check it out. Read my stuff on Collider. Love you. Have a great weekend. Bye. Why do millions of Americans choose to sleep on Bolin Branch sheets? Is it the 100% organic cotton? Is it that they get softer and softer over time? Customers can't stop raving about these sheets, and there's no better time to try them for yourself or give them to someone you love. Right now, Bolin Branch is offering their best deals of the year, and you can get their incredibly soft sheets at incredibly low prices. Just go to BolinBranch.com to shop their best deals today. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com today. See site for details. 
Did you know you could shop around for prescription prices? With GoodRx, you can find free coupons at over 70,000 pharmacies and save up to 80%. It's that easy. But don't just take my word for it. Dr. Adam says, I've been telling all my patients about GoodRx. Jacqueline says, my medication was $65 without insurance, but I paid $25. Aubriana says, you don't have to pay full price to live your best life. Couldn't have said it better myself. GoodRx is 100% free. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance.